Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you again for your presence with us, that we can worship you in spirit and in truth on this Lord's Day. Pray that our hearts are prepared to receive your word, that we can be encouraged and established by it. Do your will, united in brotherly love, empowered by your spirit. Open our hearts, give us wisdom to understand and the humility to obey your commands. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Well, once again, good to be with you all this morning. I want to invite you to open your Bibles up to the book of Revelation, chapter 3. Now, the intent of a sermon like this primarily, and I always hope that my intentions in some way overlap with the Lord's intentions for any given sermon on any given Sunday, but when January rolls around, as I kind of underscored last Lord's Day, I like to give a message to, you know, not a motivational speech really, but a, a, a message that will um, cast some vision for the year to get us thinking about uh, who we are as a church, uh, what we want to be, how we want to impact our community as the Lord leads us. And sometimes when we explore that, we can often be confronted with the kind of church that we do not want to be. So our study today is by no means me saying, this is the kind of church we are and we really need to not be this church. But of course, as it stands, we don't want to be the kind of church that we see uh, described in here. But really, I want, us, want this to be an encouragement to us as we go forward. Obviously, uh, Emmaus Road has been uh, enduring, a, a, uh, I think, a brief time of difficulty and I think it always uh, helps to, to regather, to, uh, to fall into line, and to refresh ourselves uh, in the Scriptures together. And I think that uh, this particular passage will really have an encouraging message for us. Um, what's interesting about our bulletin, if you look, it says the, ter- the, the, the sermon is TBD, to be determined. I think, well, the title of today's sermon is To the Church at Laodicea. However, it remains to be determined whether or not we will be a church like this. (laughs) So, if I can riff off that briefly, I mean, there are some good warnings in here that we we do best to take heed to. So, um, if you're not there already, Revelation chapter 3, starting at verse 14, I invite you to follow along as I read. "To To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the Amen, the faithful and true witness, The beginning of the creation of God says this, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. And you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. And I advise you to buy from me gold refined by the fire so that you may become rich. And white garments, so that you may clothe yourself. And that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed. And I salve to anoint your eyes, so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him, and he with me. He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. May God be blessed by the reading of his word. Um, 
it is not typically within my skill set to cover a passage exceeding three verses on the Lord's Day. Um, but we will get as far as we can. It is my intention to get through all of this. Uh, but we have a pretty long uh, passage in front of us. But just breaking it down, and, and I will um, repeat these as we get there. And I'm not going to uh, reinvent the wheel either. But basically, in breaking down this letter, we have the following. We have the congregation. We have the Christ. We have the condemnation. We have the counsel. We have the comfort. And then in closing, we have the challenge. So I'll read that again. The congregation, the Christ, the condemnation, the counsel, the comfort, the challenge. So this is the message to Laodicea, and we begin... In verse 14, to the angel of the church in Laodicea. So, of course, uh, there is some debate about what angel means. Some think an actual angel like one of the heavenly hosts or taking the classical uh, interpretation of angel just means messenger. Um, I typically go with the latter of the two. I think this is just speaking to perhaps a spokesperson or an elder or pastor to that church. A message by the Lord Jesus through John was given to this messenger to take back to present to the church. And we see at the very bottom in verse 22, he who has an ear, let let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. It is often thought that every church of these seven had access at some point to all uh, seven letters. The message to Laodicea is thought to be the most severe of, of the seven and as we explore the text, I think we will find out why, why that is the case. But let's get to the congregation. Here is the church in Laodicea. And just by the way, the, the, all seven of these churches are in Asia Minor, what we know today as modern-day Turkey, uh, for some geographical insight here. So, to the, church, to, to the church in Laodicea, here's the congregation. Founded by a Seleucid king, Antiochus II, in 260 B.C. So the city... As far as it goes, it's not super old. The king named it after his wife, located in the Lycus River Valley. In terms of its biblical context, it's located about 10 miles from the city of Colossae. We're all familiar with Paul's letter to the church at Colossae, the Colossians. This is actually significant. Its placement geographically is very significant. There's roads from every direction on the compass, and they happen to converge at Laodicea. And this is valuable for one major reason, and that is trade. If, you, if your city is, is, is along a trade route or where trade routes intersect, you have a lot of um, economic possibilities, a lot of opportunities, a lot of opportunities to, to gain wealth. And so, incidentally, this was a very wealthy city. You'll note, if you want to look at the text again, where Jesus... In verse 17 says, because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing, right? He is referring to the economic prosperity of the city of, of the city of Laodicea. And then he says, I advise you to buy from me gold refined by the fire so that you may become rich. He talks about white garments and he talks about eye salve all in verse 18. And those are part of the reason that Laodicea was wealthy and things for which it was known. It was a huge center for banking in Asia Minor. Had huge gold reserves, so once again, a very wealthy city. Uh, There was an earthquake uh, in Asia Minor during that time. I think it was the 60s, 
and they were able to rebuild without help from Rome. That's how wealthy the city was. Typically, when disasters happen, we see that today. What goes through Congress? You know, emergency federal aid to, to send to a particular city or particular state, you know, maybe because of a, of a hurricane or an earthquake. Well, Laodicea was so prosperous, they did not require funds from the Roman Empire. In fact, the Roman historian Tacitus writes that Laodicea arose from its own ruins by the strength of her own resources with no help from us, us being Rome. And with that wealth, it was famous for its production of black wool, clothing, right? Hence, we have the white garment. It's also, along with gold and wool, their, their eye ointment, there was, a, there was a white powder produced there. Uh, that had medicinal qualities, and along with that, Laodicea was home to a very large medical school, had a very large Jewish population, but the main thing that Laodicea is known for, both historically and in this letter, is its lukewarm water. Keep that in mind. It was known for its tepid water supply. No record, uh, no, no, no specific records other than 260 BC, but we know that uh, in terms of the, the, the church founding, we don't have a definitive historical record, but we know that based on Colossians 1.7, Epaphras evangelized there. So we know that there's a church, we know that there is a congregation, and we know by this letter that it is enduring uh, some very challenging times. This is, again, I take an early date of the book of Revelation for what it's worth, and uh, the church is not far, the New Testament church is not far from its from Pentecost, and it's already enduring a lot of challenges. So, it, a church like this helps us to, to, to pause, take a step back, and, 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 and reflect on the statement of, I wish that we were like the New Testament church. And of course, it brings the question, yeah, some of you are laughing, you know what I'm talking about. Which New Testament church do you want to be like? Because a lot of them were messed up. Well, I want to be like the Corinthians, you know, all that love Paul's talking about. Well, the Corinthians had challenges of their own, some, some scandalous challenges. They were, they were tolerating sins that weren't even named amongst the pagans. So when you talk about, I, I wish we could just go back to the, fir, the, the, the first century church and the way they did things, well, you've got to qualify that, my friend, because a lot of these churches had some serious issues that churches today don't even go through. And yet we can be encouraged by what goes down in this letter, and also uh, have this letter serve as a warning for us. There are things both to pursue and things to avoid. But that is the congregation, that is the historical setting, and it's very significant for our understanding of this letter. Secondly, we have the Christ. Now, Jesus Christ, this is who is being revealed, who is being unveiled in this book, presents himself in three ways to the church at Laodicea. He calls himself the Amen, the faithful and true witness, and the beginning of the creation of God. Now, I would maintain that in the majority of these seven letters, that how Jesus presents himself is what offers the solution for the very thing that these churches are going through. How Jesus presents himself offers the solution to the problem. And of course, we would say, well, yes, Christ is the solution to every problem, but in very specific ways. So first, he is the Amen. The amen referring to, again, how do, we, how do we end our prayers? In Jesus' name, amen. Jesus is this. And I think what this speaks to is his authenticity, that he is fixed, he is firm. Speaks of his faithful character. 
the solidarity that we have in Him. We also know that in this, that fixed in Christ is the fulfillment of the new creation. He is the faithful and true witness. That speaks to His truthfulness or veracity. So in Christ we have presented here both authenticity and veracity. What does that mean, truthfulness? It means simply that everything Christ says is firm and reliable. It's accurate. Now, if we were a church and we were listening to the indictment that Jesus is about to reveal, in our less humble estate, we would say, you know, Lord, with all due respect, that is way harsh. I mean, that's not very, that's not very loving what we're saying. That's really hard for us to take. I just, I just can't, I just can't even right now. I can't take this. And yet there, herein lies the solution, is that what Jesus is going to say is truthful. It is accurate. It is reliable. After all, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. So whatever he's about to say, we know is rock solid. We know it cannot be denied. It is true through and through. Thirdly, he is the beginning of the creation of God. That speaks to his authority. So you have authenticity, veracity, and authority. He is the arche, that is the source or the origin. It's not saying that Jesus is a created being. He is not the the first created thing. No, he, it means that all of creation originates with him. Right? He holds all of creation by the word of his power. In him, all things hold together. He was with God in the beginning, John says in his gospel. All things were created through him, and without him, nothing was made that was made. So all of creation finds its source in Him. And so if that's, the true, if that's true, and it is, because He's the faithful and true witness, that means that Jesus is head. He is in charge. He is preeminent over all of His creation. And that gives Him authority. He has the authority, the utmost authority, to speak to His church pertaining to what is going on there. And along that authority, He can very cl- clearly tell them, because I am the source of all things, your very dependence rests on me, rests on my power. So very clear presentation of the Christ. Let's get into the condemnation. Here's the first thing. I know your deeds. Think, uh uh-oh, he knows. Sometimes we've been on the receiving end of that. Sometimes we've been on the giving end of that. right? And it's always cause for alarm. Someone says, I know. I know what's been going on. You may think you're okay. You may think you've been able to hide it, but I know. And here is Jesus, who sees all, who knows all, has exhaustive knowledge of the situation. And so with all authority, he speaks, I know your deeds. And he says this, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So an attention grabber here. Now notice what Jesus doesn't say, because normally in really bad situations, we would expect to find what we find in the other churches. We would expect to find idolatry, but there doesn't seem like there's a lot of idolatry going on here. There doesn't seem like there's theological or what we would normally term as ethical problems. There's no synagogue of Satan. There are no people who who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Think, okay, so far, the diagnosis isn't that troubling. We're neither cold nor hot. All right, what else? 
So what's going on here? What, most of us are familiar with the explanation here. You are neither cold nor hot. So, of course, the hot is thought to be a reference to the city of Heropolis, the hot springs, famous for their healing powers. Colorado has Colorado Springs, <laughs> Glenwood Springs. We have hot springs in our own state that people go to for therapy. It says, no, nor cold. So you're not hot, nor are you cold which is most likely a reference to the cool streams of Colossae. Cool, refreshing, drinkable water. So there is something in the water here, clearly. Sam Storm says this, The topography of the region also sheds light on his use of the word lukewarm, as the hot mineral-laden waters from Heropolis traveled across the plateau towards Laodicea. They gradually became lukewarm before cascading over the edge directly in view of the Laodicean populace. There are actually archaeological remains in Laodicea of an aqueduct system that would have carried water from Heropolis. The people in Laodicea would have been keenly aware of the nauseating effect of drinking from that source. That would be of some concern because we, we need water. The, the body can survive weeks without food, but can only survive a few days at most without water. So here's the problem. You are lukewarm, which in modern parlance simply means warm. <laughs> but Jesus says, I wish you were hot or cold. Now, a little interpretive correction here that I think may be helpful. If you were a child of the 80s and 90s, you grew up, if you, if you, especially if you were raised in the church or you went to Christian school, sometimes a teacher or a pastor from outside would try to come in and motivate you, and they would always challenge you, man, I just want you guys to be on fire for Jesus. En fuego, right? Lit up for the Lord. And I think some mistakenly interpreted this as Jesus is talking about a preference, right? I wish you were on fire for me, or I wish you were cold in unbelief. That's usually how it's presented. But don't be lukewarm, because lukewarm is it, it's hypocritical, and I would say it is whether you take this interpretation or not. I think what he's saying here is that he wants the church to be useful, and he says if you're lukewarm, you're useless, you're good for nothing. Right. If you were hot, right? imagine, if, imagine if a church in any given city were, were, were like the hot springs, right? They bring healing as they seek the welfare of the city, the, the healing warmth of the gospel. Same thing with cold. If we apply this analogy to any church, we would see a church that brings refreshing, the refreshing of the truth of God's Word to its city. But in, but in either sense, we find a church that is useful, not useless. And I say that because even though we would acknowledge that there is some there is some apostasy, some apostate behavior, some gospel-denying behavior in Laodicea. I do not characterize it as the apostate church. I, I think it's better to see this as the useless church. A church that has lost its passion for Christ. A church that has, as even Jesus will acknowledge, a church that has lost its zeal. So they're being rebuked sharply for their uselessness. Uselessness that has come from self-sufficiency. We'll develop that a little later. So the church is not hot. That is, they are not binding the spiritual, spiritually broken. Neither is the church cold. They are not refreshing the spiritually thirsty. So I think, I think that illustration is sufficient for our purposes. 
So what is happening to the church of Laodicea then? It is that it is being rebuked for its stagnant spiritual condition. You know, we are told to seek the welfare of our city, right? We are like sojourners, we're strangers, we're exiles, directionally speaking. And we are to seek the welfare of our city. But a church that is lukewarm is spiritually ineffective. They are useless, beneficial to no one. And yet they boast about being wealthy. And I would say that true spiritual wealth is measured by what one gives, how one can bless, and not limited to what one has. And yet they boast that they are rich because they have plenty. But look at what Jesus says. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. So we see that that Jesus is more than disappointed. Imagine being a church that makes Jesus sick. This is why it, it is beneficial for us to consider this even today. It's beneficial to try to get ahead of things. I never want Emmaus Road to come to this point where even in our abundance, we become useless, where we boast in self, and we think that somehow that, those material blessings means that Jesus is pleased with us when really we make Him sick. This is, I think, one of the only times we see this in Scripture. See our Lord react to various things. Jesus gets angry when he sees the money changers in the temple. He's angry. He overturns the tables. He weeps with sadness over the situation of the city of Jerusalem when they do not recognize him, right? He came to his own. His own did not receive him. His soul is in great distress when he prays in the Garden of Gethsemane. Father, take this cup from me, yet not as I will, but you will. Your will be done. And yet, lukewarmness, this attitude makes him sick. And you think of all the troubles that the other churches had among the seven. And you think, man, of all the scandalous things they were entertaining within their own midst. Jesus is not seen as being sick. He does not threaten that he will spit them out of his mouth. He finds their behavior nauseating. And this is hard for us to take, I think. I mean... And in some sense, the New American Standard is a bit PC. We think of spit like, you know, there's no dignified way of doing that. But really what's going on here is a very, is a very strong word. It means to vomit. Like projectile vomit. The imagery is stark. The imagery is startling. And it's meant to be. Why would any church in its right mind desire their Lord, the one who bought them with a price, the one who reigns forevermore, the one who has reconciled them with the Holy God, the one who is their high priest forever? Why would any church even want to get remotely close to their Lord thinking of them this way? You think that's, this is not a very polite Jesus? For him to come and say, you make me sick. And yet we have to come to grips with this reality. It's violent imagery. It's startling imagery. And yet, it grabs our attention. This is a lukewarm church. And to guard ourselves against us, we kind of have to entertain, well, how does it come to this? How does a church become lukewarm, especially a church with such opportunity? A trade center. 
I mean, think of ourselves in Colorado Springs. While, why, while every, every city has, has, its, has its impoverished areas, it's what we call a low-income area, I would say on the whole, Colorado Springs is a pretty vibrant city. It was ranked number two, I believe, in 2022 as the second, yeah, second best city in America to live. It's got a great economy. It's, pro, it, it's, it's prosperous. There's a lot of economic opportunity here. Houses are flying up. There's development everywhere. It's getting harder and harder to see Pikes Peak from your deck because houses are being built in front of you. That probably makes you want to vomit. So you find, so you see how we could probably, we could potentially find ourselves in this in a similar situation simply because we live in a wonderful city. We really do live in a wonderful town, and there's many ministry opportunities here. There's many economic opportunities here. And there's a temptation that Laodicea fell victim to, and I think I just want to list how this happens, maybe, just, just to give you some food for thought. How does one become lukewarm? And I think they're pretty obvious. I think initially it's when we let things sit spiritually. We may profess faith in Christ. We may read all the Reformed books available. We may listen to all of the the cool podcasts. We may be blessed, but we never really have any zeal. We would call this room temperature faith. Room temperature faith. And I think when it comes to the Christian life, we are always to be stoking the fire. We're always to be feasting on the Word. We are always to be throwing wood on, wood on the flames so that our zeal for Christ burns hot. And I think the, 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 the reason is obvious is because whether hot or cold, you will find that things always gravitate toward room temperature. And I think what has happened with the church at Laodicea is they have allowed their temperature to gravitate toward the pagan spiritual climate of the city they're supposed to be rescuing, of the city they're supposed to be seeking the welfare of and preaching Christ to. Things always tend toward lukewarmness. Have an ice-cold beverage sitting out on your porch, what's going to happen? Or inside your house, going to come back a little while later? It's room temperature. It's lukewarm. Who wants to drink that? Who wants to drink that? You jump into the bubble bath. Water's nice and hot. It's time to relax. It's been a long day in the yard, maybe. Long day in the chair. And you just, you just want to bring relief to your achy muscles. But what happens is you sit in the, the bath for a long time and it's not so pleasant anymore because it's gotten lukewarm. Your fingers are like raisins. And you're sitting there in your own filth. And all you want to do is get out of the water. Imagine a church like this. And yet here it is described. And this is the church that makes Christ sick. Say another way is alluded here is living a double life, a hypocritical one. You're so busy serving two masters, you really become useless. You become lukewarm. And yet note their boast here, friends. Don't miss this. Don't miss the boast. In spite of this, in spite of this fact, and I mean, you think about it, you can typically recognize when someone is about to lose their lunch. Skin gets a little pale, a little green, their, their, their mouth starts to do weird things, and they clear the room, and watch out, it's an alarming thing, and yet the church here doesn't even notice it. Sad situation. 
Verse 17, because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. So this is what we talk about. This church has become self-sufficient. They think they are in good standing. And I think as many churches and as many pastors do and teach, they think that because they are blessed, materially wealthy, that God doesn't have an issue with them. God is blessing me. Why should I think that He is displeased with my conduct? Why should I think that He would say to me, you are lacking in zeal, or even worse, you make me sick? Why would He say something so alarming? I am rich, I have become wealthy, I have need of nothing. Once again, going back to this earthquake, AD 70. And if you rebuilt using your own resources, using your own wealth and economic ability, you would boast too. Ha! I mean, we boast too, right? I don't need the federal government. I don't want these tax breaks. I want to be self-sufficient. You don't want government intrusion in your life. Neither did the Laodiceans. But this is the same boast that the harlot of Babylon makes in Revelation 18.3. It says, For all the nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed acts of immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have become rich by the wealth of her sensuality. The same attitude. I am self-sufficient. I am wealthy. This leads to lukewarm attitude. In, in the church, that is where you will find it. A lukewarm attitude. No zeal. No passion for the Lord. Uselessness. But then he says this. Jesus knows, right? I know your deeds. But he says, you do not know. That's the problem. The church doesn't know. You do not know that you are wretched and miserable, and poor, and blind, and naked. And I mean, before we go any further, think of the grace involved here. I mean, from a human point of view, this is one of the hardest things we would ever have to tell someone, especially our brother or sister in Christ. I know you may not know this, but you have a massive blind spot, and I'm going to tell you, you, <laughs> you think you're great. You think you're rocking and rolling with Jesus Christ, but I will have you know, friend, that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I mean, put that as a title of one of the chapters in your book, How to Lose Friends and Infuriate People. That's tough counsel to take. That is a hard rebuke. But such, such is the truth. The Amen Himself, the true and faithful witness, has said so. And this is the reality. So three very painful diagnoses here. And I think, of course, it's, it's spiritual pride is the first one. I am rich, I have become wealthy, I have need of nothing. For a Christian to say that is a very awful thing indeed. To say that I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing. Again, it is not a sin. It is no sin to be rich. But if, you, if God has prospered the work of your hand and you are rich, you are called to bless others in proportion with how God has blessed you. If you are rich and are useless, therein lies condemnation. Therein lies rebuke. So here we have the person who is, though rich materially, they are complacent, they are smug, there is 
hardly a desire for God. There is hardly a need to grow, to pray, to study, to be holy, to seek the glory of God, to seek the welfare of your surrounding community. There is also a temptation to to take credit, which is what they are doing here. I, I, I. The self-congratulatory arrogance is palpable. And because the Lord loves His church, He brings it to their attention in a startling way. The church that says it needs nothing is the same church that Jesus has nothing good to say about. Friends, we do not want to be this kind of church. We never want to be self-sufficient or self-congratulatory. And I say that because though we are small, I would be the first to say God has blessed us above and beyond what we could ask or think, above and beyond what we deserve. I'm so blessed to be a part of Emmaus Road. I'm so blessed about, by the saints He has brought here. It, it really blows me away when I think about it. And yet I never want that to be grounds to glory in self. It is just another reason to boast in the Lord who gives all good things out of His own goodness and mercy. They are spiritually blind, just like he says here. You do not know. So they are spiritually proud. They are spiritually blind. You do not know. The lukewarm person lacks zeal, is useless to the point where he is unaware of his own state. You do not know. And so I, the one who knows is going to tell. And of course, number three, they are, there's spiritual poverty. Though they boast in their material riches, they do not know, but they are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Now, we don't have to break down all of those words, but categorically, we know that the church is in a very poor state. They are miserable. And they may say, oh, oh no, absolutely, I am, I am happy. I am overjoyed. Poor? No, I'm rich. Blind? No, I see clearly God has blessed me. And you are naked. Well, look at the clothes I wear. I have this this black dye that we, are fa- that we are famed for. And I have luxurious clothing. I go around, I parade around in my Gucci and my Prada and my Abercrombie. I really don't know what's in style these days. I buy all my clothes at Bass Pro and Eddie Bauer. But they were fashionable and they boasted in that. All the things that, that screamed wealth. And the problem, I think, is obvious. They weren't putting forth Christ and saying, Riches, wealth, He is all I need, right? It's the difference between the person who has enough and the person who has everything, right? The Laodicean has enough, he's wealthy. But the Laodicean who has Christ has everything. And so they were completely undercutting themselves. They were undercutting their presentation even of the gospel. It is not enough for us to say, I have enough. If we have Christ, our boast is we have all. We have everything. And let us not blur that by losing sight of all that Christ gives because we are blessed in a material fashion. So here we have this lack of zeal, no need, no desire to press on in the faith, no need, no desire to seek after God. No delight in Christ. No zeal for worship. I, I wonder what the congregation looked like. I wonder if you had a congregation who just kind of, you know, had church at home in their heart. Or maybe they had the first century version of Zoom church. 
ah, this is enough, I can stay home and watch here. You know, we have plenty, we're good, God's blessing us. What do, what do we need to gather together for? Wouldn't be surprised if that same attitude was found there. So here they are taking all the credit. Here they are taking, glorying in themselves. And yet that is the diagnosis. You say you have need of nothing, and yet you are poor. You are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. You are bankrupt. Listen to what, this is an interesting parallel passage. It's a similar diagnosis in James chapter 5, if you want to put your thumb there real quick. At the opening verse of chapter 5, he says, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. Once again, being wealthy in and of itself is not sinful. The question is, what are you doing with the wealth you have? Are you using it to bless others, or are you using it to oppress others? That's the question. Weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, and your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have rusted, and their rust will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. It is in the last days that you have stored up your treasure. And then, of course, he goes on to describe how they've been oppressing those who work for them. Right? So this is pretty alarming. And this is not limited to the church of Laodicea, apparently. But those who say you are rich, your riches will be taken from you. They have become moth-eaten. Once again, these are the words of the Amen, the true and faithful witness. And then we come to the council. Oh, there's counsel. Such grace is in this, is in this passage. But the Lord does not leave us to our own devices. He gives us the diagnosis and then gives us the cure. He says, I advise you to buy for me gold refined by the fire so that you may become rich. Right? Here's our counsel. Our wonderful counselor, right? Fulfillment of Isaiah 9, 6 right here. Our wonderful counselor giving us truth, hard truth that we need. I advise you to buy for me gold refined by the fire so that you may become rich, right? Real gold. Gold from me, from the source. Right. From the beginning of the creation of God. Find true wealth that cannot be stolen or moth-eaten or rusted or suffer from the latest Wall Street crash or rising interest rates. This is the gold that is purified of all dross and completely rid of every impurity. This is gold from Christ. Listen to this quote. This is the gold of knowing Christ, enjoying Christ, savoring Christ, treasuring Christ, prizing Christ, and finding in Him alone the fullness of joy that will never fade or lose its capacity to please. See, look beyond the wealth you've accumulated from the banking center. Because you are impoverished. Truly. So he's saying, in this, in this coming to Christ, we recover, I believe, true zeal, a true desire for Him, true fervor, that even though it will definitely bring suffering, they will find true and lasting riches and freedom in Christ. Read that this morning from Isaiah 55. Come, right? All of you, come to me and buy goods without cost. It's all free. It's free, but it's not worthless. The free things that we have in Christ are, that, are those things which are the most valuable. So come to me and buy gold, pure gold. And then he says, and white garments, 
White garments so that you may clothe yourself. Why, why? To cover the shame of your nakedness. It's like Adam and Eve all over again. You are exposed. You may think that you wear the garments of honor and prosperity and riches. You may think that you are untouchable. You have what other people don't have and therefore God favors you. But He says, before me you are shameful. And this shame has been uncovered. You are exposed. He even warns Judah of this in Isaiah 47.3. Your nakedness will be uncovered. Your shame also will be exposed. I will take vengeance and I will not spare a man. And here's a church that's ripe for judgment. In Ezekiel 16.36 we read this, Thus says the Lord God, Because your lewdness was poured out and your nakedness uncovered through through your harlotries with your lovers and with all your detestable idols and because of the blood of your son which you gave to idols. So he's simply acknowledging that. You guys are acting in a shameful manner. And all your shame is going to be uncovered. Both with harlotry and idolatry. However valuable you think this rare, expensive dye is, whatever prominence in society you think that gives you, come to me, the true preeminent one, the true prominent one, and get your clothing from me. Clothing befitting of purity, of righteousness, of zeal, of true zeal. Even in Revelation 19, you read on, there's all these connections here, and we can't make all of them, or else we'd be up here for three or four hours, but talks about the white garments being the righteous acts of the saints. These white garments are very, have, a, have a very important part to play in, in what Revelation is teaching. But we, what matters most is that we get them from the Lord Jesus. That you may become rich, that you may clothe yourselves, and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed. In Christ, our, our unrighteousness is covered by His righteousness. And then he says in Isal, this white medicinal powder that Laodicea was also famous for, well, that's not going to do you any good either. Come to me and get this true ointment, this true medicine, and anoint your eyes that you may see. See, that now that we can see, the first thing we see, of course, when we regain our vision is we see Christ Himself. That's the first thing we always want to see. But then, if we, if we are able to see by, his, by the working of His power, we are actually able to make an accurate appraisal of our spiritual condition and of our spiritual progress and where we are and where we fall short. And for some, it's going to be more shocking than others. Once the scales fall from our eyes and we see what is truly going on, I hope that our, our only response is to fall on our knees and repent. That's what a poor man does. That's what a man who does, who has recognized his spiritual impoverishment. It is said that the only currency that exists in the realm of grace is need. Those are our dollars and cents. It's need. It's our ongoing need for Christ. It's our ongoing need for grace and mercy and His provision and power. That's what we first need to recognize, that we need. And so what Jesus counsels them to do is repent from the things in which they found all their self-sufficiency, the things upon which they rested their laurels and even identity. But Jesus' solution, friends, is not human. It's divine. It's not material as they see it. It's a sp- it's spiritual need. It's not partial. Here's the blessing too. It's not partial but total. 
This is a case for a church where the problem can't be chipped away at. It just has to be, it just has to be destroyed. Right? Think of that uh, book by C.S. Lewis, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, when, when, when the Pevensey's cousin Eustace, this little black-hearted brat, right? <laughs> he ends up getting swallowed up in the painting with his cousins, and they, they end up in Narnia. And then, they, and then they get marooned on this island for a while, or the, the, the ship goes to this island. And Eustace, unbeknownst to him, becomes so greedy when he finds this hoard of gold, he actually becomes a, dra- a dragon. He doesn't even know it at first. But he becomes a dragon, and he becomes miserable. It's painful. It's awful being a dragon. And so what he tries to do is he tries to take off the dragon skin himself, almost like piece by piece. And it is only until Aslan the lion comes on the scene and says, I'm going to have to undress you. This is, what you're doing is doing no good. And so he has to take one of his claws and just dig it deep into the skin and just rip it all off at once. See, here we have a, a total work that needs to be done rather than a partial one. See, there are times that in, in our own lives, but also in the life of the church, our condition is so wretched and so pitiable. It is nothing less than a total work and drastic work that God has to do through Christ in dealing with us to bring us to repentance. And yeah, it's painful. And like Eustace, the dragon skin just has to be peeled off of us all at once. And yet when that finally happens, we find relief, we find comfort, and most importantly, we finally see Christ as we are meant to. And this is what Jesus is doing as the faithful and true witness, as the amen, as the source of everything, the beginning of the creation of God. He gives the Laodicean church the very solution they require. The very solution that they don't even know that they need because of their condition. See, that's the grace. We don't just receive... See, no matter how bad the condition of a church can become, no matter how miserable, no matter how shameful. Right? If that church is claimed by Christ, and I believe it is, and I'll establish that, let's be honest here, we're not going to get through this text this week. I'll establish that next Lord's Day. But no matter how bad the situation is, if Christ has a claim on you, He will offer nothing less than Himself and all of Himself to bring restoration and healing and repentance to that church. And so what an opportunity we have today to consider those things. Once again, I don't, I don't, think, I don't think we are in a condition of Laodicea, but even starting out this, this year and pondering the, the direction we want to take as a church, as the body of Christ, the impact we want to have in our city, the blessing we want to be, not only to Colorado Springs, but even to one another, Again, as we rejoin ranks and consider how we can love one another and spur one another on to love and good deeds, friends, that takes zeal. A zeal that we cannot afford to lose. So whatever lukewarm water may have found its way into the fountain of grace and life, let us go to the Lord in humility and repentance to renew our zeal and to ask Him for this cleansing work to ask Him for true riches. To ask Him to help us see. To ask Him to help us realize that we are only clothed in His righteousness alone. Otherwise, we are naked and exposed. 
Let us go to him as the amen, the faithful and true witness, and the beginning of the creation of God. Let's go to Jesus as he is and find that restoration and find that healing. And let's consider that as we pray today. And, you know, I had this all planned out, but uh, we will complete the text next Lord's Day. So please pray with me and let us uh, take stock of our own hearts. And most importantly, let us stake, let us, let us fix our eyes on Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith, who can restore our hearts. Father, thank you again for your love and your faithfulness to your church. We thank you, Lord, that you see all and that you know all. And that even though it's hard, yes, it's humiliating. It's embarrassing to have some of these things exposed, no matter what they may be. There are hard truths to recognize and to confess. Lord, but we, we want to agree with you. We know that your word is true. You are faithful. And you are the one as presented in the book of Revelation. Your eyes are like torches. There is nothing you do not see. Out of your mouth goes a sharp sword to cut through all the lies, to cut through all of our hypocrisy, to stir up these lukewarm waters, to, to, to make them either hot or cold, but either way, Lord, we, are, we will be useful before you. Lord, though you are the one who exposes who and what we truly are, you, we recognize that you also you bring, us, you bring the solution, you bring the healing, you bring counsel. And we can come to you with thankful hearts today to know with confidence that you will not leave us as we are. That you will not be silent toward us. That if there is a problem in, within the body, even at Emmaus Road, that, that your word will do its, its true and faithful work. Lord, what we would ask on our end is for humble hearts, lowliness of mind, a humility and brokenness that is ready to receive your word, to receive correction. A humility, Lord, that trusts in you, that what you break you will restore, that you will put back together. And we recognize, God, that it is only by your grace that this can happen. That is our currency, Lord. If we are rich in need, we are rich indeed, because we know that we can come to you for every good thing. So help us Lord, not to rely on material wealth, even though we know it is a good thing. But if we have it, may we be a blessing. May we be a blessing commensurate with how you have blessed us. Oh Lord, we want to be effective. We want to be useful. We don't want to, we don't want to be benched. We don't want to be judged out of existence. But we want to grow strong, to be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. So please, God, rid us of any lukewarmness. Also rid us of any backbiting or gossip or hypocrisy or even grudges we may hold against one another and may your grace prevail in our midst today lord we we love you because you first loved us in jesus precious name we pray amen